This is episode 192 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled The End of October by Lawrence Wright. This episode is part of our Literary Sunday series. Hey, everybody. It seems like this is probably a good time to talk to you a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes here at Dear Discreet Guide. So it's been almost two years since we started the podcast, and we're almost at episode 200. So with 10 or 15 episodes left, whatever we have in the rest of this year, is the point at which we're going to change things a bit. And we'll still do books and movies and talk about people's life's work, but we will step away from it being quite an advice show about work and sort of both broaden the topics and also narrow them at the same time. And I'd love to tell you what the new name of the show is, but we haven't decided. And this is where I could use your help. I'd love to have your suggestions for what the name of the show should be. So it'll be pretty similar to what we've been doing over the past two years, minus the kind of uh, work advice or career advice uh, that we folded in, particularly in that first year. So we'll still be talking about learning and work, uh, but not quite so much advice. So if you have uh, some suggestions for me, I'd love to hear them. And you know, the other thing is, I get asked most often by my guests, what's your audience like? And I have to tell them, I don't really know. I know who a few of you are, but I can tell that there's a big listening audience out there that I have no clue who you are. So if you have time and would like to help me out, drop me a line. Let me know who you are, what you're interested in, your suggestion for the new name of the show, and really anything else you'd like for us to know. There are all kinds of different ways you can reach me. I'm all over LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and also through the website, A Discreet Guide. So yeah, please reach out and let us know. And of course, any support you can give to the show is also so appreciated, whether it's a review or if you can follow the show or just give us a nice rating. All of those things will really help us in the new year, grow the audience, and also uh, provide a show that, that you really like and that you really enjoy. So not a whole lot of specifics today. I wish I had more for you, but just be aware we're planning on changing the name once we turn over into 2021, Uh, but a lot of things will stay the same and would really like to keep you as a listener and know more about you. Thanks a lot. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this.
Today we'll be talking about the book The End of October, which was published in April of this year, 2020, by Lawrence Wright. I felt as though it was time to come forward with a well-written book, since we've had a few weeks here of kind of mediocre books. So I picked out The End of October, because I thought, what could go wrong? It's had all this acclaim, because it was written before the pandemic, and it was just published in April. The New York Post said it was an eerily prescient novel about a devastating virus that begins in Asia before going global, a page-turner that has the earmarks of an instant bestseller. Kirkus Reviews said, featuring accounts of past plagues and pandemics, descriptions of pathogens and how they work, and dark notes about global warming, the book produces deep shudders, a disturbing, eerily timed novel. Uh, Robert Preston, who's the author of The Hot Zone, uh, said that it was a compelling read up to the last sentence, a story worthy of Michael Crichton, uh, eerily calm, backed by meticulous research. Publishers Weekly said it shows that Wright is on par with the best writers in the genre. And Lawrence Wright is the author of a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, and he's also the staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. So what could possibly go wrong, right? Well... Let's take a look at this in stages, because it's definitely not a terrible book, and let's see if we can see where things went awry. So here's the plot. Henry Parsons is our heroic protagonist. He's an epidemiologist from the CDC, a huge muckety-muck, and he's in Geneva for a meeting when he hears that there's some sort of viral outbreak at an internment camp for homosexuals in Indonesia. Here's our first description of him. Suddenly, a commanding voice interrupted. A raging hemorrhagic fever kills 47 people in a week and disappears without a trace? 200 heads turned to locate the source of that booming baritone. From the voice, you would have thought Henry Parsons was a big man. No, he was short and slight, bent by a childhood case of rickets that left him slightly deformed. His facial features and professorial voice seemed peculiarly outsized and such a modest figure, but he carried himself with the weight of a man who understood his value despite his diminished appearance. Those who knew his legend spoke of him with a kind of amused awe, calling him Herr Doctor behind his back or the little martinet. He was capable of reducing interns to tears if they failed to prepare a sample correctly or missed a symptom that was in fact meaningful only to him. But it was Henry Parsons who led an international team in the Ebola virus disease outbreak in West Africa in 2014. He tracked down the first documented patient of the disease, the so-called index case, an 18-month-old boy from Guinea who had been infected by fruit bats. There were so many such stories about him and many more that could have been told had he sought the credit. In the never-ending war on emerging diseases, Henry Parsons was not a small man. He was a giant. 
So Henry Parsons travels to Indonesia battling all kinds of problems, bureaucratic, logistical, even his own disabilities slow him down to complete an investigation on behalf of the World Health Organization. And he pays off a cab driver who takes him under his wing and risks his own skin to get him inside this internment camp by bribing a guard and then shepherding him inside the camp. And our doctor wades in, discovers that all the doctors are dead, and he starts doing his own autopsies. He's splashing blood everywhere. He gets completely covered. Uh, Fluids fly into his face and his eyes. He's just wreaking havoc. And then he, it dawns on him that he probably shouldn't have let that cab driver walk out after picking up whatever it is that's killing everybody in this camp. This, you know, just given how extreme the situation was with so many dead people, so many dead doctors, it seems kind of surprising that he wasn't more alert, but okay. And then why on earth he doesn't get sick, but okay. Well, sure enough, the nice cab driver was on his way to a once-in-a-lifetime trip to join millions on the Hag, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. Whoops. So now Henry has to join up with this nice Saudi prince to imprison, I mean quarantine, all these pilgrims in the holy city. Things get weird with Henry here having to become a Muslim on the fly to get into Mecca. And there's a bunch of philosophical discussions about religion that maybe would make sense if that became a theme for the book. But no, it just dies there. That's a clue about more things coming. Meanwhile, back in Atlanta, Henry's wife and two kids are mad at him for not coming home, but now suddenly he's stuck in Saudi Arabia, and no matter how important he is, he can't get out. Also, it's kind of strange during the entire book that there's never any discussion about a test for this horrific virus that has flown out of Indonesia and now is killing all these people in Saudi Arabia and everywhere, you know, it's snuck across the globe. The devastation is absolutely horrific. And then the normal functioning of government starts to collapse and people start beating the war drum. And Wright wrote, At best, Henry had only slowed an inevitable history-shaping pandemic. Governments would fall, economies would collapse, wars would arise. Why did we think our own modern era was immune to the assault of humanity's most cunning and relentless enemy, the microbe? (laughs) Cool, right? I think lots of people were impressed by the timing of the book, and you saw lots of people are calling it prescient. But now that we have reality to compare it to, it's actually not that accurate. Like when you see people interacting, there's not a lot of discussion about masks or PPE. There are restaurants that open right up after the first wave. Henry tells his family to go to a faraway farm aptly named Maggie's Farm, but not to touch the mail. But then, weirdly, they don't stay there. Then, Not only do they touch the mail, they go visit the neighbors, 
Jill goes to see, his wife goes to see her mother in a nursing home, which isn't forbidden. Uh, they just don't obey the greatest man on earth. Jill trades some pearls for a sack of tomatoes and a pound of rigatoni. Again, who would have a sack of tomatoes? You know, there's just a misunderstanding of how things would work. And then later, it turns out she actually has cash. And then in the midst of what is essentially a global meltdown way later in the book with war everywhere, someone shows up with a Starbucks coffee. Okay. Wright himself said uh, after an interview uh, that the parts that he felt about the book that he didn't get quite right, he said, but the thing I didn't predict is that most people are behaving far better and there's a greater sense of unity than I expected to see and the sacrifice they are making is having a profoundly positive effect. On the other hand, I have to say governments have behaved even worse and more incompetently than I imagined. I don't think we've finished with the geopolitical fallout. It's a very fluid, highly dangerous environment where a lot of unfounded accusations are being made. There will be consequences. So I agree. Things could get worse from where we are today, nearly at the end of October ourselves, but the chaos and the apocalypse in the book are not accurate for COVID-19. With the right virus named Congoli after the Indonesian village, two million people die in the U.S. in less than four months. So totally different virus, which is good. And that said, there are things in the book that are accurate. And that's because Wright is a fundamentally a nonfiction writer, and he does a lot of research on viruses to include in this book. A little background on him, he's written 10 nonfiction books, uh, Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief was a New York Times bestseller and was made into an HBO documentary uh, and won three Emmys. His book about the rise of Al-Qaeda, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, which was published in 2006 by Knopf, was published to great acclaim, and it won many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize, uh, which is really, you know, really great. It's been published in 25 languages, was made into a series for Hulu in 2018, starring Jeff Daniels and Alec Baldwin. The End of October is his second novel. His first was called God's Favorite, and it was published back in year 2000. He's written several plays, including a one-man play, My Trip to Al-Qaeda, which was also made into a documentary, and he's also written another one-man show called The Human Scale, along with five other plays. So now at 73 years young, he's a busy, productive writer. And maybe that's where things went kind of awry. So let's go back to the book. The research and information part of the book is well done. And the factual information is folded really gracefully into the narrative for the first 30% of the book, I would say. And it's interesting. He's picked out interesting anecdotes, and he doesn't bury you in facts and data. It's, it, it, it's good. It's well done. Here's an example. Henry had come to virology late in his career. His early work was in highly pathogenic 
bacteria, the source of many formidable diseases, pneumonia, history's greatest killer, plague, the word itself evoking terror, tuberculosis, still the number one cause of death from infectious disease. Yes, Henry respected bacteria. He thought he understood the clever mechanisms of contagion. Then Ebola had taken him to school. Among diseases, it was a diva, dramatic, sudden, and vicious. Bleeding was the most obvious symptom out of every pore, eyes, ears, nose, anus, even the nipples, the fluid being a pathway for the virus to escape the body and search out new victims. At first, doctors mistook Ebola for Lassa fever, but one of the defining symptoms of Ebola was hiccups. No one knew why. Like influenza and the common cold, Ebola's genetic material was composed of ribonucleic acid, or RNA. Other viruses, such as smallpox and herpes, were formed from DNA. The singular characteristic of RNA viruses was that they were constantly reinventing themselves over and over again in what was called a mutant swarm. Ebola was no more than a strand of DNA coated in protein and wrapped in a lipid envelope. It sometimes developed branching arms or tied itself into a loose knot like an ampersand or a treble clef. It was transmissible to humans from certain animals in the wild, especially bats and monkeys. It spent as much as three weeks in the body before symptoms showed up. So a full-blown epidemic could be undetectable until it suddenly fell like a guillotine blade. If the virus was left untreated, the mortality rate approached 90%, although intensive palliative care could cut that figure in half. Unlike influenza or measles, Ebola was not airborne. It was only spread through contact with bodily fluids— Sex, kissing, touching, and especially caring for the sick and the dead. It was a disease that specifically targeted love and compassion. And a few pages further on in this chapter, I'm going to read this also because this is kind of the good part of the book. Once Henry decided to devote his career to the study of viruses, he was daunted by the volume and diversity of the viral world and shocked by the absence of scientific understanding. Twenty years before, no one thought there were viruses in the oceans, but researchers had since shown that a single liter of seawater contained about 100 billion of them. Curtis Suttle, a marine virologist at the University of British Columbia, collected seawater from oceans all over the world and found that 90% of the viruses he examined were totally unknown to man. Yet every virus carried the genetic codes for proteins, meaning that each one had a mission. What that mission was remained a mystery. In 2018, Suttle and the other scientists looked on mountain peaks for evidence of viruses in the free troposphere, the concourse of jet travel just below the stratosphere. They were seeking an answer to a puzzle about the occurrence of nearly identical viruses in widely separated parts of the planet and vastly different environments. Was it possible that viruses, say in dust or sea spray, could be swept into the atmosphere and transported from one continent to another? 
The scientists placed buckets on mountaintops in Spain's Sierra Nevada, 9,000 feet high, and waited to see if viruses would rain into them. They were stunned by what they found. According to their calculations, more than 800 million viruses were deposited every day on every single meter of the Earth's surface. Most of these viruses preyed on bacteria, not humans. The total number of viruses on the planet was estimated to be 100 million times more than the number of stars in the universe. When a virus infected a cell, it inserted its own genes and then used the energy of the cell for reproduction, in effect turning the victimized cell into a virus factory. Once under the genetic command of the virus, the cell might be ordered to produce new viruses until it burst open and died, releasing sometimes thousands or even tens of thousands of new viral particles into the host organism to invade new cells. Alternatively, the virus in the cell might learn to coexist, as was the case with herpes, and the infection would last indefinitely. For Henry, the most surprising feature of viruses was that they were a guiding force behind evolution. If the infected organism survived, it sometimes retained a portion of the viral material in its own genome. The legacy of ancient infections might be found in as much as 8% of the human genome, including the genes that controlled memory formation, the immune system, and cognitive development. We wouldn't be who we are without them. Good, right? Good writing. All right, here I'm going to start to quibble. I guess we shouldn't be surprised because he is a writer for The New Yorker, but we do start to have Mr. Wright here bang the political drum occasionally, which seems kind of jarring with the ultra-facts-based approach that he's taken about the pathogens. So he'll occasionally make fun of Fox News. He blames some of the reactions to things on nationalists. He starts to bring up climate change kind of early. You start to wonder if the book is a little bit of an excuse for him to vent his political frustrations. I mean, it's weird that the virus research seems to have been undertaken without much slant. You know, it's just the facts. But then other topics just seem to be sort of assumed, like, Fox is bad, nationalists are racists, climate change is. He just says uh, casually at this one point, every year smog from the fires blanketed Southeast Asia, killing as many as 100,000 people in some seasons and pushing global warming to a tipping point. What does that mean? That we wouldn't reach a tipping point without those particular fires? It just feels sloppy, not not very well explored. Like he didn't expect that anybody would be reading that with a critical eye. There's also this huge outsized hatred for Russia and Putin. He seems like he makes Putin sound like this completely evil villain with no redeeming qualities. And apparently his only goal is to destroy American democracy. It was strange. It was like I was reading a novel from the depths of the Cold War. Then there are these implications that if you speak the truth about Russia, you're going to be persecuted in the U.S. I mean, okay, it just seemed strange in this kind of otherwise factually based book. So it sort of wavers back and forth between this 
thriller and then this, you know, very uh, sort of nonfiction orientation. He even manages to work the comet ping pong into the story so he can rant about Alex Jones and the conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton and the pedophiles at that pizzeria. There's also weird stuff about Jonestown, and the president and the vice president are fat, incompetent, paranoid, uh, blaming the previous administration. Obviously, the book was written after Trump came into power. And then, you know, just little digs like the adult children of the president get vaccinated before anybody else in the country. Also, Henry is vegan. It's just, I don't like having politics snuck into my soup as though I wouldn't notice. Again, on the good side, I think, remember how Robin Cook used to like bring in these fancy words, which seemed out of place and would remind me of Twain saying, don't use a $5 word when a 50 cent word will do. Wright doesn't do that. He uses some really lovely and appropriate words. He talks about, in the chiaroscuro of the iPad, he resembled a portrait of a 19th century Austrian nobleman. And as we see, you know, he can write. He's a very competent writer. I won't read you more, but there are lots of examples of really good, clear, good writing. Okay, now things start to get kind of questionable. One of the reviewers said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, for all the people who write thanks in his acknowledgments, how did they let it slip by at the beginning of chapter six? And then there's this sentence, 14 days after exposure, Henry opened the flap to his tent and then, yeah, it goes on a bit. And then he says, uh, he wore the same clothes he had worn at the opening night cocktail in Geneva only 10 days earlier. And that really struck me because I'm not sure I would have caught that, but mm, that might have raised a, a flag for me. So I went and looked it up. And in my version of the ebook, lo and behold, it says, he had worn at the opening night cocktail party in Geneva only two weeks, period. That's it. So it's clearly been, uh, quote, corrected, but a new error has been introduced. And, you know, I just have to say here, how many times have I seen this happen in the finance world where you find an error, everyone is rushing, you try to fix it, and you actually make it worse, and you introduce a different and sometimes much worse error. Beware of doing things in a hurry. And even the title of that chapter is really odd. It's Henry Takes Charge. It's strange, it's, and it's not consistent with the other titles. It makes it sound like a kid's book. And, you know, the other chapter titles, once I started looking at them, really varied a lot, kind of in tone and style. Like they were maybe slapped together. And then there are these various typos here and there, contracting instead of contrasting, and then T-B-E-Y instead of they. I mean, this is a book published by Knopf, after all. And I think this really brings us to the nub about this book. I think it was slapped together to get it out early, in April, so everyone could brag about how prescient and clairvoyant and how well he predicted things, and the book got kind of destroyed. I mean, it's really a shame. 
Some people speculated that different writers wrote different parts because of the kind of uneven tone and the random insertion of various sections. There's some evidence of that. So here's one. Uh, This is uh, quite late in the book. Tomorrow he would return to his lab at the CDC. He had no contact with it for weeks, and who knew what state it was in? He had to find his children, but where else could he turn? Where would they go? Were they in good hands? Were they in trouble? So many unanswered questions awaited, but in this moment he had to say goodbye. This writing style is definitely unlike Wright's normal style, and Maybe all of us are capable of writing schlock like that when we're in a hurry. I'm not so sure that I agree with this theory. I mean, the book is 400 pages long, so it didn't need to be that long to become a bestseller, for sure. My sense is it's more likely that Wright had this large kind of unwieldy manuscript that he'd been planning to make much longer and take longer to get into shape and develop various themes, maybe even how a world-collapsing pandemic can make even a scientific person turn spiritual. And so I have some evidence for that theory. After the part above about Henry and his children, we're suddenly dumped into several out-of-place, in my opinion, sections. Uh, One of them is, suddenly, this section just begins... Henry was bothered by the fact that the first human case of Congoli had not yet been firmly fixed. Now, this is when he's supposed to be worrying about his kids, right? Then there's a long section about his team working on that and identifying the virus. And then there's a long section where he learns about some old and abandoned virus laboratories. And then out of the blue... It says, Henry understood that this was an emergency and he was badly needed, but he was frantic about his children and resented being pulled away. We've just had pages and pages of stuff about viruses and background, so he's clearly not that frantic. And the real issue is sentences like that just call attention to the fact that those sections are misplaced and that there wasn't continuity from before when he's worrying about his children and now when he's worrying about his children. So it just makes it obvious that the outline of the book got manipulated and corrupted. There are a few other problems. Remember how I talked last week about Amity Gage telling us writers that reading should take our readers into another world, but if you wake them by jarring them with something that doesn't makes sense, when they wake, they will be in a bad mood. And we see that with a lot of the reviews coming in for this book. When somebody does know something about somebody and then their sleep is disturbed, when they come across something that wakes them up because they know it's not accurate. So Tom wrote, For me, the most damning issues were the technical errors about submarines. Having personal experience serving on a sub similar to the one in this book, the story lost all credibility. I wondered how wrong the author had gotten the medical aspects of the book as well. And for me, I don't know much about any of this. I certainly don't know anything about submarines. I do know a little bit about bears. And there's a scene with some grizzlies that, well, maybe, but 
I really doubt that scene could happen. And why on earth was that scene even in there? It's completely irrelevant to the plot. I'm wondering if it was supposed to fit in that there should have been a whole bunch more about Henry's religious awakening and somehow these interactions with these bears were supposed to be part of that. Instead, it's just stuck in there for no good reason and really leaves us questioning what the heck is going on and leaves me questioning, like, what was the purpose of that story? So it just added to my feeling that this book had been conceived to be something quite different and that its structure got tossed in the air to be published, quote-unquote, in time for the pandemic. And as a reader, that you know, that's just not a good feeling. There were some other reviewers who criticized it for other reasons. Nicole Del Sesto wrote, There was too much going on. I suppose an existential crisis was to be expected in this circumstance, but it was a tinge annoying. Since Saudi was involved, there was a religious aspect, Muslim views and racism, military, Russia, other diseases, things going on at home, precocious children, etc. I don't want to spoil any specifics, but it was over the top. Like every idea this guy ever had for fiction needed to be incorporated. Then there were just some flat-out strange decisions. For example, there was a power outage for a number of days, might have even been weeks, and the power came back on. So despite the pandemic, restaurants opened that day, and a character was in a restaurant enjoying a cabrese salad by lunchtime. Really? Where was that mozzarella being stored during the power outage? Perhaps if we weren't living this right now, I might not have noticed that. But since we are in quarantine and we know how slowly things are opening, that seems like a careless mistake. Where was the editor? This could have been a taut, gripping thriller. Instead, it was all over the map, literally and figuratively. But who cares about editing, right? I mean, the books got sold. Yeah. Now, that said, there are some criticisms that weren't fair. And sometimes readers don't read very carefully, and they're skimming, and they miss things. So Martin Jensen from Canada wrote, uh, he actually gave it four stars. A good read with a lot of fascinating information about infectious diseases, epidemiology, and microbiology. The overwhelming prevalence of viruses in our environment is astonishing. On the con side... What struck me most, however, was the ludicrous assertion that a virus had been identified from a frozen mammoth uncovered in Iceland. How does the author suppose they got there? By swimming? This mistake is the more remarkable given the distinguished experts whose guidance the author mentions in the acknowledgments as having read and commented on the text. There is no evidence, not surprisingly, of any megafauna ever having inhabited Iceland. Now, this threw me for a loop, and I'm embarrassed to tell you how many hours I spent one night late figuring out if his criticism was true or if he'd gotten it wrong. And the short answer is Martin Jensen, the reviewer, got it wrong. Wright never claims that mammoths were on Iceland. He does claim that they were someplace else, and it is more plausible that they were there. I'm not going to explain this in detail because, spoilers, just in case you are considering reading it, and I wouldn't want to discourage you if you are so inclined. There's definitely stuff to learn and some memorable scenes, even if as a novel it doesn't hang together. 
But I will say I went way down this rabbit hole of islands in the Arctic, old laboratories, oceanic navigation. But the bottom line is this. I would still blame bad writing, or maybe I should call it careless writing, for Martin's mistake. Do you ever go back through like a list of goofs from a TV show or a movie and think, you know, I did notice something was kind of funny with that scene. Like there's one recently I saw where there's a pile of trash that's first on one side of the car and then in another scene, it like miraculously has jumped over the car and it's on a different side. I mean, obviously they moved the car during the course of the filming. And as a watcher, you know, you might get the feeling like something slightly funny, but you don't really register what's happening. The ones that always crack me up are drinking scenes where the levels of the drink in people's glasses sometimes rise the more they drink or suddenly are halfway drained when they haven't even taken a sip yet. Anyway, so that's some of what happened here with this issue, and I'll spare you the details, but right names the chapter, he gives the name of the chapter, a geographic name that misleads the careful reader into thinking that they're going to one place. And then he navigates them through a different area. I actually think it might have been to kind of show off that he knew what route they would take to get there. But then ultimately they land in a completely different place with no explanation. It's just a sign of things happening too fast, and there were either too few words or too many words or the wrong words. Okay, I want to do one more thing here before I close. Roxanne Gay posted a review on Goodreads, and this gives us a chance to talk about taste. Remember how I talked a while back about there's no accounting for taste? I think that was about one of the Greg Bear books. So Roxanne, I don't know if you know who she is. She's an American writer and essayist now in her 40s. And she's known for her discussions and views on feminism, weight issues, race, and sexual violence. She wrote Bad Feminist, which is a collection of essays that became a New York Times bestseller. In the middle of all these kind of crazy topics, I I felt as though she would occasionally hit a, a pretty good note. And my full review of her book is on my website in the book review section. Anyway, so her review of the end of October goes like this. She gave it two stars out of five. I will say that a lot of research went into this book. This is not a lazily written book, but it is poorly written. Sometimes when a writer does a lot of research and wants the reader to know they are a credible expert on their subject, they make fiction seem like nonfiction. If you want a primer on pandemics, timely, then sure, this book offers something useful. The problem is that there are pages upon pages of what are essentially lectures on pandemics, vaccines, biological warfare, U.S.-Russian relations, etc., It's interesting that this book was written well before the coronavirus because so much of it is prescient. Wright did a good job of anticipating what might happen in a global pandemic, and unfortunately, much of what he predicts as part of the novel's plot is already happening. 
there are some ludicrous plot holes. The protagonist, Henry, is one of the most important epidemiologists in the world, and no government can get him a flight back to the U.S.? Really? He works for the CDC and, again, is super important, but he can't make sure his family is secure? Sometimes his disability gets in the way. Sometimes it is completely forgotten in the narrative. He pretends to convert to Islam because, well, reasons and girl, I guess. And then after hundreds of pages, he wraps up the ending by skipping past like 10 scenes we needed to see to understand the ending. OMG, sir, what? This is not my area of expertise, but the depiction of disability seems really problematic. There are some confounding flashbacks that are not well tied to the present-day narrative. There are shifts in POV to characters who are never developed. So much is happening that is not good. A character will do something, and then the author will explain why that character did that thing, even though it is always, always patently obvious. There are all these unnecessary and extensive expository ramblings. Nearly every scene ends with an editorial aside. It's kind of shocking just how unfortunate some of the writing is. As a writer, I take no pleasure in saying this because writing a book is hard work. And like I said, the amount of work that went into this book is plainly obvious. It just forgot that it was supposed to be a novel. Writing is hard. What do you think? I mean, I've been pretty hard on the book, but I I do relate especially to her ending. Writing is hard. And I don't like being critical, but if I'm not fair to my reader or listener about the book, then when I say a good book is good, you won't believe me. And also, aren't I doing a disservice to the books that weren't thrown out there in a hurry and were really perfected and well edited? I think it's partly up to us as readers to indicate to the publishing world that we care about good books and that we're not so asleep or so bamboozled or whatever drives this that we'll just read any old thing out there and give it five stars. I believe that in order to support good writing the way other discerning readers do, we have to demonstrate an appetite for it. So I think Wright had an opportunity to write an exciting and profound novel, and it got wrecked because somebody wanted to publish it fast. And then I think we have to object and say, give him more time to write the book the best that it could be. Woo! Hell of a soapbox today, right? Okay, there were huge reactions to Roxanne's review Uh, you know, because she's very well known. A lot of people agreed, but a few people didn't, and they kind of fell over themselves to defend the book. And so I think it's fair to recognize that when you fall in love with a book, to hear it being criticized, it's really hard. I mean, I've definitely been there when someone says a book that I liked is implausible or silly or whatever, and I'm like, I know, but you know, I loved that character, or I thought the book was funny, or I know it's depressing, but it was so beautiful. So the thing is, I'm sure I've made some people feel bad who are big fans of some of the books, probably including the end of October. And I hate making people feel bad. One reader wrote in response to Roxanne's review, 
completely disagree with this review, period, which I love because it just states his or her opinion, which actually judging by the profile picture, it's actually a dog and, and just leaves it at that. And I would say, you know what? The dog is entitled to the opinion. So as always, I'd love to hear what you thought of the end of October. Another good thing about it is it's timely because we are approaching the end of October ourselves during a pandemic. And also things are not nearly, not nearly, no way as bad as the situation in the book. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.